I want to talk to you today about an inner, an inner calm, not an intercom, an inner calm. And I've been trying to say that clearly, uh, but sometimes I may say intercom and you'll know exactly what I mean. An inner calm. And that's what we want to talk about today. We're studying through the book of Philippians and we've arrived at verses 4 to 9 of chapter 4. If you'll find your place in your Bible at that place, we'll be looking at that. As I was putting together this message for today, I began to realize that there's way too much material in those six verses for me to cover in one sermon. Um, and so what I have done is I've broken this sermon into two parts. You'll hear part this week, part one this week, and of course part two next week. And ultimately, at the end of next week, we're going to take the four letters of the word calm and we're going to use them as an acrostic for what the scripture has to say to us here about how we can have that inner calm. But that won't be until next week, and so you can't have the inner calm until we get through part two of the sermon. You didn't get that, did you? That's supposed to be funny, but wasn't that funny, was it? You, you can't have any inner calm until next week's sermon is preached. But uh, we're moving in that direction, and we will take the letters of the word calm, and uh, we will use those as our acrostic. I read uh, books all the time. I'm always carrying a book with me or doing something with a book in my hand. A lot of times they're electronic books, so uh, they're on an iPad or on my iPhone. But I read a book earlier this summer entitled Get Your Life Back. It was written by John Eldridge. I have read some other things by John Eldridge. Uh, Focus on the Family is an author that's known by, uh, through Focus on the Family. And this particular book, the title caught my attention. Be truthful, I, I've read it. I finished it. Uh, there wasn't anything all that new in the book that I hadn't read in some other books, but there was one particular practice that I picked up from reading that book earlier in the summer that I want to tell you about. It's called the one-minute pause, where you take 60 seconds periodically through the course of a day. I'm trying to do it in the morning, at noon, and at night, at least three times a day. Take 60 seconds periodically through the course of your day to just be still and let everything go. He writes this, as I enter the pause, I begin with release. I let it all go. The meetings, which I know is the meeting, the meetings, what I know is coming, the fact I'm totally behind on everything, all of it. I simply let it go. I pray Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you. I keep repeating it until I feel like I'm actually releasing and detaching. I give everyone and everything to you, God. All I'm trying to accomplish is a little bit of soul space. I'm not trying to fix anything or figure anything out. I'm not trying to release everything perfectly or permanently. All I'm trying to do is to let, let go for 60 seconds. And as I do, even as I say it out loud, I give everyone and everything to you. I'm settling down. Then I ask for more of God. Jesus, I need more of you. Fill me with more of you, God. Restore our union. Fill me with your life. I don't know if you feel like I feel, but it seems like to me that there are more stressors, there's more anxiety, there's more fear, there's more pressure than there has ever been. I think back to 9-11, September of 2001, 
September the 11th, 2001. And it was very similar during that particular period. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of uncertainty. And what happened at that particular point is it drove people to the church. We saw people come to church out of the woodwork that we hadn't seen in forever. But because of that anxiety and that fear, it drove them to church. But this pandemic has done the exact opposite. It's driven them away from church. And it's kept them from being able to gather with believers and kept them from being able, in some cases at least, to hear the preaching of the word of God and to be encouraged from the truth of God. And as that happens, anxiety and fear and stress just continue to grow. I've been trying to keep up with statistics as we've been going through this pandemic. And the statistics I'm about to give you come from a little earlier time in this pandemic. In late spring of this pandemic year, a survey was done of 1,895 U.S. citizens, which found that 72% said they felt they would reach a breaking point by mid-June. Remember, this is before, earlier, by mid-June if stay-at-home orders weren't lifted by that time. And 100% of the people who, particip who, who participated in the Kelton Global Analysis said they would snap if these measures lasted longer than six months. <laughs> well, we blew right past June, and we're about to blow right past the six-month figure, right? And people's fear and anxiety and worry is growing. I don't know if you see it as you're out amongst people. There are some people who shouldn't come out. They're advised not to come out, and rightfully so. We, we don't want their lives to be in danger, but there are others that are simply afraid to leave their houses. Even if they take all the safety precautions, they're afraid to leave their houses. The anxiety about the virus and what potentially it could do to them is so overwhelmed them that they can hardly function in life. And it's not just those of us in my age bracket. I think it's interesting what the statistics tell us about Generation Z. Generation Z are those that were born from 1996 forward. So they're in their early 20s, uh, late teens, at least the oldest of them are in their early 20s and late teens. Here's what it says. Research found that 40% of those in Generation Z are feeling more alone than those of other generations. Younger Americans, it goes on to say, overall seem to be handling the lockdowns worse than others. Young Americans. When the survey was conducted, more than a third of young adults ages 18 to 24 admitted they were already at their wits' end. 69% of respondents said they are extremely worried about flying on an airplane again. 75% believe air travel will never return to the way it was before. Similarly, 76% said the same thing of taking a cruise. 62% of going to a restaurant. 58% of using a ride-sharing service. And 53% of going to the hospital after suffering a medical emergency during the coronavirus epidemic. It continues. Unfortunately, 21% of those presently fearful of eating out again said they anticipate their anxiety will last forever. 43% of those currently afraid of taking a cruise also said their fears will be permanent. 71% of the respondents said sporting events and concerts will never be the same. 
Majorities also said movie theaters, 67%, and hotels, 66%, will be permanently changed. That's the younger generation. What are you telling me, preacher? I'm telling you that we're living in a world right now, especially, that is filled with anxiety, it's filled with fear, it's filled with uncertainty, and some people are being engulfed by it, and it's swallowing them up, and they have no inner calm, the kind of inner calm that God wants us to experience. Did you know that 1965, Billy Graham said that historians will probably call our era the age, of, uh, the age of anxiety, 1965, that's more than 50 years ago. More than 50 years ago, he said the age would be called the age of anxiety. That's back during the Vietnam War, during the, you know, the unrest and the riots during that period of time. The age of anxiety. I wonder if he thought 50 plus years later we would be facing what we're facing today and that the anxiety levels would be off the charts and fear would be off the charts, and yet it is. So let me stop here for a moment. Let me say something. I don't have this message mastered yet. You're not looking at somebody you can say, okay, preacher, you've got it down so you can tell us what all we're supposed to do. I am still in the process of learning just like you are in the process of learning. But that doesn't change the truth of Scripture, does it? It just means that we're all in this together learning and growing how to deal with our anxieties and with our fears. And that's what we want to talk about in these two messages about an inner calm. And we'll take those four letters of the word calm and we'll turn them into an acrostic that will be used, I hope, as a memory tool so that you can constantly be thinking about how you can have this inner calm in your life. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9... There are five imperatives. That means commands. I want to point them out to you if I can do that. The first one's in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's the first imperative. The second imperative is in verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The third imperative is in verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, or literally stop being anxious. The fourth imperative is at the end of verse 6. Let your request be made known to God. The fifth imperative is at the end of verse 8. He says, meditate on these things. And then in verse 9, after he talks about you've learned and received and heard and you saw in me, here's the imperative, these do. Now those six imperatives are going to be summarized down into four statements using the word calm as an acrostic. But before we can do that, we've got to walk through these six imperatives. And we're going to walk through two of them today. We'll walk through the others uh, next week. Imperative number one, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, you probably are well aware if you've been with us in this study that joy and rejoicing are common themes throughout this letter. 14 times you find the word joy, rejoice, rejoiced, rejoicing. 14 times you find that truth presented throughout the letter. And I want you to remember that as Paul is writing about joy and writing about rejoicing, that he's doing so while he's under arrest in Rome. He's under arrest 24-7, chained to a guard. 
There is nothing easy about his life. There's nothing convenient about his life. There's nothing enjoyable in the sense of the circumstances that he finds himself that are enjoyable. And on top of that, he's writing to people in Philippi who are under and enduring a level of persecution. And yet, though he is suffering and the Philippians are going through difficulty, he writes to them and he says, I want you to have joy, the joy of the Lord in your life. I want you to rejoice in all of these circumstances. I want there to be rejoicing in your heart. And you say to yourself, as I say to myself, how in the world can that be? How can you have these kinds of circumstances in this kind of a setting and yet be filled with joy and rejoicing? Well, let's be reminded that Jesus had that same kind of joy and rejoicing. The fullest treatment of what Jesus had to say to his disciples while they were in the upper room is found in the Gospel of John, chapters 14, 15, 16. That's the fullest treatment of what we have that Jesus said to his disciples when he was in that upper room. Do you know what Jesus was facing while he was in that upper room? His imminent death. Only hours away or less. He was going to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He would ultimately be taken under arrest. Judas would lead that crowd up the hill. They would take Jesus under arrest. He'd be led away to the unjust trials that he had to endure. And that next morning, he would be crucified on a cross. And he'd take the penalty of mankind's sin upon himself. And yet in that upper room, with his death imminent, Jesus said this to his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy, hear those words, my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Think about that. Think about what Jesus is facing. This is the darkest moment in human history that's ever existed or ever will exist. When Jesus would go to the cross and Jesus would die on the cross of Calvary. And yet Jesus, in the midst of all of those circumstances, talks about my joy. You know what that means? That means that even when we're in tough times and even when things are hard, God intends for us to have joy. God intends for us to rejoice. He wouldn't have made it a command. Rejoice in the Lord always if it wasn't something that we could, in fact, experience. Joy isn't just for those who are in a good place in life. It's for all of us, no matter the status of our lives. All of us can experience an inner calm. All of us can have that inner sense of rejoicing in our hearts, no matter what our circumstances. You know, as I was thinking about this message today and preparing this message, I realized that the times that the Apostle Paul talked about rejoicing, so often the Apostle Paul said that they were to rejoice because of something, or he rejoiced because of something that was happening. Just, just turn back in your Bible for a moment to Philippians chapter 1 and look at verse 18. Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. Notice what it says. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, in what? In the fact that Christ was preached. In this, I, I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. There were some who were preaching. They were preaching the gospel, but they were doing it with the wrong motivation. And the apostle Paul was asked about it, and he says, I rejoice. Here's the reason I rejoice. They're preaching the gospel. And so the rejoicing had an object. 
That object is what spurred the rejoicing. Look at chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Chapter, chapter 2, verse 17. Yes, and I am being poured out. That means he's sacrificing his life. I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. What was the object of the verb? The object of this rejoicing, that I'm being poured out. He considered it a privilege that he got to sacrifice his life in the service of the master. And look at chapter 4, verse 10. We won't get to this verse for a couple of weeks, but in chapter 4, verse 10, listen to what he says. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. He rejoiced. Why? They had sent him an offering. And that offering was going to assist him and help him in what he was doing uh, there in Rome. He was under house arrest, but he had to pay the expenses of that house. Rather than being in the Roman prison, he had to pay the expenses of the house. Chained to the guard 24-7. No freedom and no liberty, but he at least got to be in in a house, a room of some sort. And this church had sent him money. And he said, when I think about that gift that you sent, I rejoice. When I think about the sacrifice of the service that we're rendering to God, I rejoice. When I think that the gospel is being preached, I rejoice. You say, what are you telling me? That most of the time we can look around ourselves and we can see things that are going on or around our lives and they're things in which we can rejoice. But what if my life is so bad and things are so hard and things are so difficult and I just can't see anything in my life in which to rejoice? Then you rejoice, as he says here in verse 4. You rejoice where? What is it that, what is the object of this rejoicing? What is what prompts the rejoicing? He says, rejoice where? In the Lord. In other words, when my circumstances are such that I can't look at those circumstances and find some reason for which to rejoice, I can look above my circumstances and I can look to the God of gods and the Lord of lords and the King of kings, the one who is the Savior of mankind, and I can rejoice in him. And did you notice what he says? Rejoice in the Lord every once in a while. It's not what he says. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Maybe you'll find yourself in a situation somewhere where the situation doesn't prompt a reason for you to rejoice, but you can always rejoice when you're looking to the Lord. That's the object that prompted his rejoicing. That's what is supposed to prompt our rejoicing, even if we can't find other reasons to rejoice. Can I just tell you that you've got a lot of reasons to rejoice if you think about it. We rejoice that God watched over us last night and brought us here. Amen? Amen. We rejoice that his daily provision sustain us. Most of you are going to go home and you're going to have a meal today. And you're going to be able to have your house. And you're going to have electricity and the water and all those things. you know who provides that? God does. We rejoice that he never leaves us or forsakes us. When friends walk away from us, when we're socially distanced from the people that we desperately need to know and be around... He never leaves. He never socially distances himself from us. We rejoice that Jesus has taken away our sins. He's removed them from us as far as the east is from the west. We rejoice that we have a house and we have a roof over our heads and you could go on. But even when life is hard 
and our circumstances are bad and we can't see something around us to prompt our rejoicing, we stop and we rejoice in who God is and in what the scriptures reveal to us about him. And we rejoice in the Lord. That's a command. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. Paul rejoices in the Lord always, even though he sits in prison. He's maligned by his enemies. He's hearing reports of strife amongst his friends. Yet nevertheless, he finds reason to rejoice always in the Lord. His joy wasn't anchored in circumstances, but in his Savior. In this command that we're to rejoice, it's not about our feelings. Well, I don't feel like rejoicing today. Well, yeah, a lot of days we don't feel like rejoicing. Why do you think I read a book, Get Your Life Back? A lot of days we don't feel like rejoicing, but this is a matter of obedience to Jesus Christ. And we're able to rejoice in who he is and in what he has done for us. One of the other books I've read this summer is a book about Hudson Taylor. I enjoy reading the biographies of some of the, the great saints of old. Um, this particular book is one that I would recommend to you. Have your children read it. He was a pioneer missionary to, to China. We don't have very many pioneer missionaries anymore because there's not very many places to pioneer. But these are places where missionaries would go that no missionary had ever gone before. And Hudson Taylor was called of God to go to China, but when he got there, his wife died. After 12 years of marriage, she died. This was the love of his life. There was nobody that he loved other than the Lord more than he loved her. And after his death, he wrote these words to his mother who lived in England. For my inmost soul, I delight in the knowledge that God does or deliberately permits all things and causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. He and he only knew what my dear wife was to me. He knew how the light of my eyes and the joy of my heart was in her. But he saw that it was good to take her, good indeed for her, and in his love he took her painlessly. And not less good for me who must henceforth toil and suffer alone, yet not alone, for God is nearer to me than ever. And now I have to tell him all my sorrows and difficulties as I used to tell dear Maria. And as she cannot join me in intercession to rest in the knowledge of Jesus' intercession, to walk a little less by feeling, a little less by sight, a little more by faith. There is a man who couldn't find in his immediate circumstances necessarily something about which he could rejoice that prompted rejoicing, that was an object that resulted in rejoicing. But he could look above those circumstances and he could look to the Lord and he could find in the Lord reason to rejoice. He wrote to a missions leader during this particular time of his life with his wife had passed away and this is what he said, my eyes flow with tears of mingled joy and sorrow. When I think of my loss, my heart, not a breaking, rises in thankfulness to him who has spared her such sorrow and made her so unspeakably happy. My tears are more tears of joy than of grief. Now listen. But most of all, I joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ in his works, his ways, his providence in 
himself. And can I tell you, the world desperately needs to see Christians who learned to rejoice in spite of their circumstances as well as because of their circumstances. People who have learned to rejoice in the Lord. How much? Always. They desperately need that. They watch us and they listen to us and they hear us talking about our hope and our peace and our confidence if we do and we should. They hear us talking about these things and they can't figure it out because they don't have an eternal perspective. But you and I have an eternal perspective. And that eternal perspective and that eternal hope is something that they desperately long to have for themselves. And it acts like salt that draws them and causes them to thirst for what they do not have. And so Christians, this is a matter of your witness this is a matter of your testimony. This is a matter of bringing others to faith in Jesus, living in such a way that they hear and see the rejoicing of your heart in the Lord always, and to rejoice as well in the things that are around them that prompt them to rejoice. That's the first imperative. Rejoice in the Lord always. The second imperative is found in verse 5, and this is going to blow our American minds. So hold on to your seat, fasten your seatbelt, because I guarantee you we're about to be as countercultural as you have ever thought of being. Verse 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Let your gentleness be known. Gentleness is translated differently in the different translations that we read sometimes. Some translations put it as reasonableness. Uh, William Tyndall, in his uh, translation, we have our Bibles today because of, of William Tyndall's translation work, he translated the word as softness. It's translated sometimes as moderation, sometimes as graciousness. In my devotional reading, I like to read from the, the New Living Translation uh, sometimes, and it's translated there as the word considerate. What does this word gentleness mean? Here's what it literally means. Now, sit up and listen. Pay attention. Not insisting on every legal right or custom that is afforded you. You know, we as Americans are used to demanding our, what's the word? Our rights. This word emphasizes the exact opposite. Not insisting on every legal right or custom that has afforded you to yield, to be kind, to be courteous. It speaks of one who is content to receive a smaller share, even though he has the law on his side to receive more. In other words, to be willing to give up. Now hear me. To be willing to give up the desire to have one's own way. Now, if that's not antithetical to the culture in which we live, your head is in the sand. You're not paying attention because everything about our society is about demanding our rights. And there is a time and there is a place for doing that. But the Apostle Paul reminds us that we're also supposed to be people that let our gentleness be known to all men. That yieldedness, that graciousness, that consideration, that moderation, that reasonableness known to all men. And who exemplifies this better than Jesus? Just a few pages back in Philippians, 
Chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read it to you from the Christian Standard Version. Listen to it. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Did he have to do that? No, he didn't have to do that. He had a legal right to demand something else. But in humility and in gentleness and in graciousness, he assumed the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Could he have called the angels and been delivered legally? Yes. But he let his, he let his gentleness be known to all men. And aren't you thankful? Aren't I thankful that he let his gentleness be known to all men? Someone sent me a, a post from social media that exemplifies what I'm talking about. They didn't know I was preaching on this today. But when I read it, I said, that's an illustration from a message. It's written by a man named Levi. I'll not give you his last name so that you don't go look it up. Comes off of Facebook, and he's on vacation, and he writes these words. I was rude to someone today. We are on vacation out of state this week in North Carolina. I walked into our usual donut joint with my mask on. The owner walked up to me and started taking, my, taking our order. In retrospect, I should have given more attention to her weary countenance. I took one side of my mask off so I could continue my order without being muffled. Without hesitation, she, she said, Sir, please put your mask on. My flesh convinced me that this was the time for me to be a patriot. I put the mask loop over my ear and told her that we wouldn't be needing any donuts after all. She seemed to shrug my response off, so I continued. I didn't yell. I didn't make a scene. But I looked at her straight in the face and told her she was rude. We exchanged pleasantries, and I left. Two miles down the road, the Holy Spirit smote my heart. I stood for my personal belief while ignoring humility and grace. I turned the van around and drove back to the donut shop. I entered the shop, and the same woman was standing there. And I had to stop there and think to myself, I wonder what she's thinking now. You know, what does he come back to say now? I walked right up to her with my mask on, looked her in the eye, and said, and this is how he writes it, I, period, am, period, sorry, period. All of that for emphasis, obviously. He continues, with workers and other customers looking on, I asked for her forgiveness and told her I should have been more gracious and humble. She opened up to me for a few minutes about how tough the current situation was on her as a former nurse and current small business owner. She was tired. She was weary. She was worried. She didn't need a personal, she didn't need a seasonal patriot. She needed a gracious Christian. I purchased my donuts. We laughed and I left. When I got back to the van, I explained to my children that it was important we set aside ourselves for the well-being of others. I made sure my kids knew that I was willing to eat crow so a tired stranger could have an emotionally healthy day. 
I explained to my children what I had done and how I needed to make it better. I explained to my children that God allows us to make mistakes so his grace can be on greater display. He finishes out, we will be back for more donuts this week. I'll be wearing my mask the whole time, making sure I'm a blessing and not a bully. And I didn't have to give up a shred of freedom or dignity to do so. And then he concludes, this world needs humility, grace, and forgiveness. It doesn't need more casual Christians dying on their temporal hills. It needs more Jesus followers living out the gospel. Yes, be a patriot, but don't let your personal beliefs drown out your faith and witness. All we are enduring will one day fade away, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Let your gentleness, your reasonableness, your graciousness, not demanding your legal rights, even though you could demand those rights, not demanding those rights, let your reasonableness your softness be known to all men. He says the Lord is at hand. That means one of two things. It can mean that the Lord is near to help you. He's there to watch you. Or it can mean that his coming is near. It doesn't matter which you choose in this particular context. It simply is a reminder that the Lord is near. He's either coming for us and we want to be ready to meet him or he's right there with us to help us. But in the process, we're supposed to be people of gentleness, not people who are rattling people's cage, trying to get them to understand, this is my right. I bet you lawyers wish they had fewer people who ran around demanding their rights, and then they could give their attention to the real cases that needed attention. There's a couple of interesting books about a pastor in England he ministered in the 19th century. That means the 1800s. His name was Robert Chapman. I'm going to blow your mind here. I don't recommend that you read the books. They're not page turners. They're not the kind of thing that you're going to sit down and read and say, man, I just love that book. But there's some things I took out of those two books. He never pastored a large church. He ministered to some who did. Some who had great influence during that period of time. People like George Mueller people like John Nelson Darby. Maybe those are names with which you're not familiar because you're not familiar with church history, but those were titans of the Christian faith at one time. This man, Charles Chapman, this man, excuse me, Robert Chapman, um, Charles Spurgeon said about him. Now, Charles Spurgeon is a name you probably know, likely the most famous Baptist preacher of the last two centuries. Charles Spurgeon said about this man, R.C. Chapman, he said, he is the saintliest man I ever knew. That's a pretty high compliment. I'm not sure that I would be known that way. I want to be known that way. The saintliest man I ever knew. On one occasion, uh, R.C. Chapman received uh, something that was mailed to him from out of the country, and it was delivered correctly to him. And this is how it was addressed. R.C. Chapman, University of Love, England. <laughs> and yet it got to him. I thought about it. It'd have to be addressed to me. David Lemming, the University of the Perpetually Offended, U.S. 
right? These two episodes come out of Chapman's life. That's the kind of man he was. That's the kind of gentleness that he demonstrated to all men. Chapman was called to pastor a small congregation of what were called particular Baptists. There were particular Baptists. There were general Baptists. They had a lot of things in common, but they had some things that, where they disagreed. And he was called to pastor a small congregation of particular Baptists. Well, he, he wanted to make it clear that if you call me to be your pastor, that I'm going to preach what the Bible says, whether it's what the particular Baptists believe or not. They called him as the pastor. And things were pretty good for a little while, but as the church began to grow some, there began to be dissension amongst the congregation. A small number of people didn't like the fact that he didn't espouse some of those particular Baptist belief. And so that small group of people rose up and they left the church. And then they said to Mr. Chapman, we would like for your group to leave the church and we'll take the buildings because you're not preaching the particular Baptist's beliefs. Well, Mr. Chapman had been a lawyer. See, God saves even the worst of us. I'm, I'm kidding to my lawyer friends. I'm just having fun. I need your help. He, he had been a lawyer, so he went and looked up the trust deed to see you know, what was required, and he learned that they didn't have to give up the property. There was nothing in the deed that would require them to give the property. So he and the congregation began to pray and search the Scripture about what they should do. And he came to the conclusion, the congregation that was there came to the conclusion that this was a Matthew 540 issue. Do you know what Matthew chapter 5, verse 40 says? If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And in 1838, Chapman and the congregation relinquished their rights to the property. And every American hearing the story says, what? I would never do such a thing as that. Let your gentleness be known to all men. There's a time to fight, and there's a time to be reasonable and let it go. You think that story is something? They left the building. The largest number of people, think about that. You've got 100 people in your church. This is, you've got 100 people. Ten of them leave, and then they send word back, we want you to vacate the facility so that we can have them. Think about that. They vacate the property. Mr. Chapman and his congregation began looking for another piece of property. They find something that's in an ideal location. They find something that's up for sale. It was a former tanyard. The price was right. Everything was ready. He, being a lawyer, drew up the contract. But right before they closed the deal, the local Anglican clergy declared that they had intended to buy that particular lot and build their church. And again, Mr. Chapman and the congregation prayed about it, and there was a verse that guided their decision. You want to guess which verse it was? We've been talking about it. It's the second imperative in this passage. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Wow. 
Though they could have legally proceeded with the sale, they decided it was more important to be known as gentle, so they decided to give up their claim to the property, and they ended up buying another piece of property somewhere else. Now, are you saying, preacher, that I should never expect my rights to be respected? No, I'm not telling you that at all. But I'm telling you that a lot of us are little more than bullies. A lot of us too often act like we're the entitled A lot of us, because we're Americans, think that we deserve certain things. And we get to be unreasonable. We lose a sense of graciousness. We lose a sense of a yielding spirit for something that's greater than just having your own way. What Paul wants us to take away from the second command is that Christians should have the reputation of being courteous and gracious people, not bullies. To be gracious means that we don't speak or behave in vindictive and hateful ways when things aren't going our way or we're facing something we don't like. And I was challenged about this yesterday, and if I hadn't been studying this passage, I wouldn't have practiced it. Are y'all still with me? Have y'all totally checked out? This is so antithetical to the world that we live in, the culture we live in, But listen, Christ is not calling you to go along with culture. Christ is calling you to something totally different than the culture in which we live. To let your gentleness be known means that you don't go around intentionally. Now hear this. You don't go around intentionally spreading unhappiness to other people. And yet if we have to sit in line too long and wait for them to pull up to get our order, we're frustrated. I get frustrated. Now, don't look at me self-righteous like that. I'm looking at y'all. You're judging me right now. I'm looking back at you, and I'm judging you too. We're all guilty at times. There will never be an inner calm. What we're going to describe, take those four letters of the word calm and use them as an acrostic. I'll give that to you next week. There is no calm this week. Can't have it till next week. There is no inner calm when you're not rejoicing in the Lord always, when you're not letting your gentleness be known to all men. God's asking us to be different than the world we live in. God's asking us to be a people who follow a different master and who follow a different plan.